I think the reason for <clears throat> the bad news in verses 5 through 8 was to make clear why the law weakened by the flesh could not do what had to be done. And so he gets down to 5 through 8. He says, here's what I meant by weakened by the flesh. The law couldn't do those things because the mind of the flesh is so insubordinate to God. When it meets the law, it produces law-breaking, not law-keeping. Therefore, the only hope in the universe was that the Son of God would be sent into the world. Verse 3, I think that's how it all hangs together. So it's all meant to, to give you tremendous confidence that there's no condemnation for you in spite of the fact that there's war going on between spirit and flesh in your life because Christ has done the decisive work of taking our sin upon him in his flesh. So here we are at verse 9. Our goal is to get through verse 25 in this session. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So all that horrible stuff that was spoken about inability in verses 5 to 8 is not true of you in Christ. You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So it's the difference between being it in you and you in it. My understanding of that would be to paraphrase it like this. You, however, are not in the sway and control of the flesh. You are in the sway, in the current of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, if he's in you. So if he's in you, you're in his control. That's my paraphrase to make sense out of the in you and in him. Anyone who does not have, so have is like in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ Whoa, shift Spirit of God to Spirit of Christ? Interesting. Why? Why would he do that? Does not have the Spirit of Christ. Clearly, the, the logic demands that they be the same Spirit, right? You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. If the Spirit dwells in you, anyone who does not have the same Spirit, Spirit of God, but he says Spirit of Christ, which is just chock full of implications, Trinitarian-wise. But why would he do it? Why the shift? He's free to. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are the one Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ. Maybe anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So instead of saying is not in him, doesn't belong to him, when I, when I think belong to him, I think, okay, how, how did I come to belong to him? How did you become his possession? Which triggers in your mind, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. In Paul's mind, to belong to Jesus is to be bought out of slavery, out of the flesh, into Christ. So this language of belonging to him is Jesus' language in Paul's mind. Maybe that's why he shifted to Spirit of Christ. That's a guess. I don't know. He's, I'm just happy to, to say... Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ are one spirit, and anyone who has the Spirit of God is in the Spirit and His sway, so that you're walking according to the Spirit, and anyone who has that Spirit, call it Christ, call it God, belongs to Jesus. But if Christ, oh, third, second surprise, Shifts from Spirit of God 
to Spirit of Christ to Christ. Amazing. This is just full of, hmm, why would he do that? Just follow the logic. I mean, you can just hear these are all the same being. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ, they all have to be the same. The, the flow of thought doesn't work unless they're the same. And that triggers, this shifting to Christ here triggers uh, John. I don't know if I wrote it down here. At any rate, John 14 something, where it, he says, I, I, he is with you now, he will be in you. I will come to you, I will not leave you orphans. So he says, I'm, the Father will send to you a, a comforter, the spirit of truth. I will come to you, I will not leave you as orphans. So, so Jesus himself taught the apostles, the spirit that's coming is me. When he's there, I'm there. Otherwise, what would the promise at the end of Matthew mean? I will be with you. I will be with you to the end of the age. But I'm going to send you another comforter to be with you and in you. That's me. That's the way Paul's talking here, right? Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ. But if Christ is in you, and now he introduces death, um, which, which kind of sends up a little warning. It's going to get bleak in this chapter. It's going to get really bleak and glorious. There's no naivete in this chapter about how well it's going to go for Christians. It is not going to go in this life for Christians. So we start now suddenly on the agenda is a warning lest you think because you are redeemed, because your sins are paid for, because you're delivered from the power of the law of sin, because the Holy Spirit is in you, you skip death. You don't skip it. Which means we are saved in stages. You got that category in your mind? Like your sins right now couldn't be more forgiven than they are. Your righteous standing before God could not be more perfect than it is. But you're going to die. Which was a consequence of sin and the fall. So that part of the consequence has not been overcome by the cross. So let's read it. But if, if Christ is in you, though your, your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. You, you could say, well, I thought you took care of the sin problem on the cross. And his answer would be, I did. But you will benefit from it in due time. Your sins are gone. Righteousness is provided. Wrath is removed. Everything decisive to secure your future is done. It is finished. But the last enemy will be death. And we'll do that later. You're going through it. It's sobering. And he means for it to be sobering. But the spirit is life. Are you with me? The spirit is life because of righteousness. Oh, big, big question again. Who's righteousness? I got zero problem saying Christians are really practically righteous and need to be. If you don't put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you go to hell. We'll get to that at verse 13. Real righteousness happens. We do walk by the Spirit. We do bear the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. If we don't, we don't have the Spirit. 
This could be my righteousness in principle. Is it? Or it could be God's righteousness in Christ counted as mine, which is part of the teaching of Paul in Philippians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, 21 and uh, early parts of chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the glorious doctrine of Christ's finished work counted as mine, both his atoning death and his perfect life counted as mine. Could be that, which is it? And again, the way you answer something like that is by trying to follow the thought. Because one of the answers I don't think will work here. It says, the Spirit... Um, is life, I think that is a good translation, by the way. The old translations used to say, um, our spirits are alive because of righteousness. That's not theologically false, but the main argument is that this word is not alive, it's life. It's just a little awkward to say our spirits are life. It's not awkward to say the spirit is life, because we already said he's the spirit of life back in verse 2. So I think this is a good translation. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, that means if you take righteousness to be my righteousness lived out, that the argument goes, the reason the Holy Spirit is at work in you with life-giving power is that you have become righteous. That just totally doesn't work. It doesn't work on Paul's terms. You might make it work. It just doesn't work. Because he said the Holy Spirit was poured out because Christ died for us so that we would be righteous. That's verse 3 and 4 and the logic between them. So my answer here is this is God's righteousness. It's not, this is not my lived out righteousness. This really is justification. This is imputation here. If Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So take heart, you must die, and you will live again. And your body will not be thrown away. We are not Platonists who want to be set free from the body. We don't want to be naked. We want our bodies and we want them glorious. And you're going to get it. I want it to be covered with hair on top. <laughs> not so much saggy right here and fewer wrinkles and better eyesight and don't want my wife complaining about my hearing anymore and And I'd like to just be so amazing that you would be tempted to worship me. <laughs> because it says in Matthew 13, 43, that we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. You can't look at the sun. You can't look at the sun until your body is glorified. So you, you've got to have glorified eyes to see me. That's chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, so I shouldn't be talking about it. But it, it's here. This is resurrection. And so he, he introduces death in verse 10, right there. And then he lifts that burden from us in part by saying, he'll raise you. So take heart. see what I'm skipping here. So then, brothers, after all that amazing work of Christ on the cross and the work of the Spirit in our lives and the promise of resurrection, so then, brothers, we are debtors. Not. Not. To the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything. 
It has done nothing but ruin you, defeat you, prepare you for everlasting torture. Don't live to the flesh. Why would you live to your murderer? You don't owe it anything. Don't get up in the morning and yield to your killer. We are debtors. And you would expect him to finish the sentence, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. And he never gets around to that. It's just, Paul does this several times. It kind of breaks off, doesn't finish his parallel, which, which would cause you to ask why, and the why is pretty significant here. He, something comes to his mind, and I believe divine inspiration works that incarnationally, that God doesn't cause Paul never to have rabbit trails in his thinking. He just guards the rabbit trails so that they're always true. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, Break off, instead of saying, but to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit, which is what you would expect. Instead of that, he just stops that and feels the need to say something shocking and urgent about why you better be vigilant against your flesh. Because how easy it would be for you to say, He died for me. I'm perfect in Christ. My resurrection is guaranteed. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Home free. No fight. No danger. Be easy to go there as a nice Protestant lover of the doctrine of imputation, like me. And he won't let me go there. I can remember taking Romans in seminary and being shocked by verse 13. Shocked. I just had been so oblivious to the flow of thought up till then. Up, up till I was 22, I thought of the Bible as a string of pearls. Oh, I loved them. Pearls served me well. And I never noticed there were chains. It's a chain. It's not a string of pearls. It's a chain with links of brass, steel. And it's pretty shocking a lot of times. So there I was staring at this. The reason for, the reason you better not live according to the flesh is if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does that mean? It doesn't mean physically die because everybody physically dies. And he just said, you're going to physically die. And then be raised. So it doesn't mean physically die. What does it mean? It means forever. It means hell. It means judgment. It means wrath. Brothers. And everything, you know, in your theological body or mind rises up and says, you didn't talk that way to brothers. The whole point of this chapter is security. Those of me justified, he glorified. You are rock solid, safe, elect. Yes, you are. That is the point of the chapter. Boldness. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But if you don't kill the deeds of the body, you're going to hell, brother. That's true. I preach that way. I believe every pastor should look out, look out on his congregation and warn them they could go to hell. Because Paul does. Pastors who don't create a sense of urgency in their people about what their lives mean and what's at stake in their lives are doing their job. And if you say, well... How can that work? I mean, verse 30 of chapter 8. Make another little attempt here to jump around, which I shouldn't do. 
Those, I'm in verse 30 at the bottom. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Nobody falls out. No predestined person fails to be called. No called person fails to be justified. No justified person fails to be glorified. You are absolutely secure. And if you live according to the flesh, you will go to hell. Now, one of the ways people do theology is that they see things that look intention and they throw one of them away. They throw one of them away to make it work. That's a bad idea. The problem with your, is with your brain, not the word. And it, it, until you take three, four, five years to work on that, I'm not going to encourage you that you've done your job when you throw one of them away. If you can't figure that out, just preach it. Preach it. Teach it. Teach it to your kids. Here's the way I put the two together. So you've got absolute certainty for God's elect over here. All the predestined called, all the called justified, all the justified will be glorified, no dropouts. And here's a warning to the brothers. If you live according to the flesh, you will go to hell. Not contradictory, because... If you live according to the flesh, you show you have the mind of the flesh and you are not in the spirit and were never born again and are not among the elect. Which turns Sunday morning into a pretty serious moment. I really believe that. I used to say to people, every one of my sermons is a salvation sermon. I'm keeping people saved. My preaching is an instrument of God to preserve the elect. And one of the ways you preserve the elect is to talk like Paul talks. You tell them, you live according to the flesh, you go to hell. If you are elect and you're full of the Holy Spirit, you hear that, you tremble. And with fear and trembling, you work out your salvation and go to heaven. That's the way he keeps you. It's not automatic. It's vital. It's living. The Word of God, that was the point of last night, the Word of God is used by God to keep you. And one of the ways He keeps you is with warnings. And if pastors say, I can give warnings to my people like this because they'll, they'll start being afraid of falling short. <laughs> They're supposed to be afraid of falling short. And the fear sends them flying to the gospel and to Jesus. So, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, so what's the alternative? I don't want to die. If by the Spirit, this may be among the most important things we'll see, if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you won't die. You'll live forever. Yes, you will. Which means we need to come to terms with what in the world that means. What is putting to death the deeds of the body? First of all, what, what are the deeds of the body? Everything is a deed of my body, then, right? No. Well, you wouldn't, like, use my body to take soup to a neighbor. Don't put that one to death. What is he talking about? Back in chapter 6, he says, do not yield your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. 
So sin is the real culprit here, not body. Sin is the real culprit. And what does sin do in us? What is the old remnants of the flesh and the old man, the old nature that's trying to war against the spirit? What does it do? It takes my hand. It takes my eyes. It takes my sexual inclinations. It takes my body and tries to make it an instrument of sinning in the world. Kill those. Kill those. And the way you kill them is by going for the root which is why John Owen, who wrote a whole book on this verse called Mortification of Sin, whole book on verse 13, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Perfect paraphrase. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And he said, be killing sin, not the deeds of the body, because he knew the root of the body's problem. <laughs> the body's not, the body's just flesh. The body's just flesh. It's, it's skin. It has no moral quality. That's not a moral thing. There's bone and there's blood and there's skin. That's not moral. Moral is my sin making this punch you. That's moral. And therefore, you're going to fight that deed. You go for sin or you don't go for anything. So how do you do that? He tells us how. He says... By the Spirit. Oh, how precious and important is life in the Spirit. By the Spirit. So how would you do that? I'm going to take you on a little quick sequence of thought. This, this is one of the most important little sequences of thought in my life. This is how I live, I try to live my life. First clue, Ephesians 6, 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, why do I go there? Because it said, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Okay, you're going to kill something. In the armor of Ephesians 6, there's only one weapon for killing. You usually don't kill people with a, with a shield. Like, mm, mm. Helmet. Mm, mm. You, you, you kill people with a sword in this war. Kill the devil with a sword. And the sword is the sword of the spirit. And it is the word of God. So that's my first clue. Okay. Paul is saying, put to death, kill sin, kill the temptations to be selfish, kill the temptation to be greedy, kill the temptations to be covetous, kill the temptations to be lustful, kill the temptations to be violent, kill them, kill them by the Spirit. Well, he's God. I don't wield him. What do you mean by the Spirit? Like, Spirit, bang. I, he's God. I, he picks me up. I don't pick him up. That's, that's, that's the way I struggle with these verses. No, you don't pick him up, but you pick his sword up. When you pick up his sword, he's at work mightily. So that's first clue. Here's second clue. Galatians 3, 5. Okay, there's the sword right there in front of you. It's the word of God. What do you do with it? Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the spirit to you that's crucial. I need that because he said, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Answer, no. How? With the hearing of faith. So now I've got the hearing, which is the word, and I've got faith. Aha. So what do you do with the word? You've got, you got the Spirit. He's got a sword. It's the word. Use it. How? Trust it. Is that what it says? By hearing with faith, the Holy Spirit is supplied. That's an, that, that verse is just about as important as it gets in the Bible as far as living. Okay, I want the supply of the Holy Spirit this afternoon in dealing with some tough issues so that I don't sin but rather be used by the Spirit to bear fruit. 
the just requirement of the law fulfilled, love this afternoon, not selfishness and anger and greed and mean-spiritedness and fear and self-pity. I want all that stuff dead. So, Holy Spirit, how do I get you? It's right there. He who supplies the Spirit, how does he do it? He does it by hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. Hear what? Word. Word of promise. Word of God. Word of gospel. Word, word, word. Hear it. But when you hear it, the, the way you wield it to kill Satan and sin is, I trust you. I trust you. Next clue. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. Just pause. That is a paraphrase of what I was trying to say about how security and warnings relate. We are saved through being changed. You know, uh, I grew up in a tradition where eternal security was as mechanical as it could be. Prayed to receive Jesus when you're six, you're going to heaven, live like the devil. Not through sanctification. That never, I never saw that in 25 years. Nobody's saved except through sanctification. Nobody. There is a holiness without which you will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Never saw it. That's what we're talking about right now. The sanctification of putting to death sin so that you don't die but live, be saved, happens how? By the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's all there. The Spirit has a sword. You wield the sword by trusting it. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Only if you believe it, trust it. Illustration. This is Hebrews. So what I'm going to do now with Hebrews is just give you a glimpse of how does that work we're, we're, we're just illustrating how does verse 13 of Romans 8 happen. If you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will go to heaven. If you live by the flesh, you will go to hell. That's urgent. We need to know this. We need to live this or we perish. We're not mechanical. I don't care if you prayed a prayer when you were six. You can perish if you give all the evidences by living according to the flesh. You're not his. You don't belong to him. This is urgent. People need to feel urgent about this. Most important things in the world. And most people live their lives as though nothing were big and horribly real and unbelievably important day by day, hour by hour. It is. So here is how you do it with the temptation to steal because you love money. All right, I want to kill the deed of the body called stealing, and I need to do it by killing covetousness, which is the sin underneath stealing. Okay, here's how it happens. Keep your life free from the love of money. So keep your life free from the love of money and be content. Oh, yes, that would free me from so many sins. Be content with what you have instead of being greedy and covetous. I just got to have that new iPhone. For he has said, 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 said. <laughs> he has said, I will. Never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that? 
Does he who supplies the Spirit to you right now to free you from the love of money, does he who supplies the Spirit to you do so by works of the law? I can do this. Or by hearing that with faith. No doubt what the answer is. I will never leave you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I am free from the craving love of money to have more security because I've got a promise. I've got a word from God. I've got a sword with which to slay covetousness if I believe it. That's how you live your life. So what's, what's the temptation you're facing this afternoon, tomorrow, or when you go home? What temptation to sin, to greed, to anger, to covetousness, to lust? What, what are your besetting temptations? This is, you got to kill them. Not perfection. We've made that clear in the first hour. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking a bona fide new direction of warfare by which you are getting victory over sin, not perfectly, but significantly enough that you see I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit who enables me to put sin to death. How are you going to do it? This, I commend to you, is how you kill sin. So we've been on verse 13. And he could have skipped it and just said, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but we are debtors to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit. And he didn't say that. He introduced one of the most troubling, shocking, important warnings in the Bible. Verse 13. It's worth a book, John Owen. Thank you. Why is it that if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live? Why is that? Because all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That logic work? Oh, it works. You see it. Sons of God don't die. They get glorified. Heirs of God, children are heirs of God. Sons are heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We don't die eternally. We die physically. We don't die eternally. And sons of God don't die. All who are dead by the Holy Spirit are sons of God. Therefore, if I were giving you an exam, that would be my question. Finish that. Therefore, everyone who puts the deeds of the body by the Spirit don't die. Here's the, here's the necessary premise that needs to be stated. Led by the Spirit is the evidence that you're a son of God. Sons of God don't die. Therefore, if you are led by the Holy Spirit, you won't die because you're a son of God. Therefore, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Therefore, I conclude, led here means led into war with sin. Doesn't mean marry the right person. That's nothing. That's not what's going on here. Like, if you're led by the Spirit to have the right job and led by the Spirit to go to the right ministry and led by the Spirit to marry the right person, on and on and on. This is not the point. This, the, the, the connection between verse 13 and 14 demand this logic. Let me paraphrase it. If you, by the Spirit, put to death sin, you will live because everybody led to put to death sin is a child of God and they don't die. 
That's the logic. So, implication. If you have the Holy Spirit, you hate sin. It's one of the marks of the witness. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. We've got another four here. I just cannot emphasize enough what I discovered when I was 22, and you may discover here that biblical writers argue. They don't string verses together. They argue. Verses argue for verses. Propositions argue for propositions. And under the inspiration of God, that means it matters to see it. God ordained that we would think about these fours, four, and this so here. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is how you know that those who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. Because you didn't receive a spirit of slavery. God doesn't make slaves, but sons. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Adoption as sons, not slavery, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, you might wish... I would wish that the very reality of slavery didn't exist. Pre-Civil War slavery, sexual slavery today, histories of slavery, of horrible, horrible abuses of people through chattel slavery. You, you would wish that didn't exist, but it does exist. And one of the reasons is so that God could say I don't make slaves I make sons I don't I, I'm, I'm creating a family not a slave force is that awesome <laughs> that he, he created the universe to create a family for himself and his son as the older brother. And the spirit that he's given us cries out, Abba, Father. And that is named, that reality is named in verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, bears witness with our spirit. That we are the children of God. What does that mean? What does that refer to? At least two things in this passage I think it refers to. The witness of the Spirit. With your Spirit. That you are a child of God. Is number one. The awakening of a cry. Daddy. And I think the word cry is important. You can program a computer to say, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. That's no proof that the computer is a child of God. See the issue? And humans can say, Abba, Father. And on the last day, hear him say, I never knew you. That's why I think he used the word cry. He could have said, say. He said, cry. Kradzo. Because he meant, it's going to be real. And the word Abba, as you know, is a, a term of endearment and intimacy and preciousness. 
And Father is a massively strong and helpful, supplying, protecting term. So you got to cry, and you got a little, little daddy word here, and then you just get this massive, I care for my children. you got all that. And when the Holy Spirit produces that in you, it's a witness. You're mine. You are mine, my child. Here's another way to say it. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So behind this word, cry, here, is a genuine spiritual change from self-sufficiency to childlikeness. I need a daddy. If you, if you from your heart feel like, I don't, I'm not insubordinate to God anymore. I don't have a spine of steel. My neck is no longer stiff. My brass is, my, my, my forehead is no longer brass. I'm just a little needy baby. I need somebody to take care of me. I don't have any pretensions anymore being smart or strong. I just need God as my father. That is the Holy Spirit's witness. That's the first thing it means. An authentic, humble, childlike, dependent cry to God to be your father. You are my father. I need you. The second meaning, I think, is to realize that what a witness does is give evidence. That's the first evidence we saw, namely the awakening of that cry. This witness here and the evidence secondly that I see in this text is what I mentioned earlier in verse 13. Well, 14 and 13, those who are led by the Spirit of God put to death the deeds of the body. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he bears witness to his, his being there and you're being a child of adoption by virtue of creating hatred for sin. So you get these two, you get these two very different emotions that are created in the born-again heart. One is a little child, a little tender, meek, helpless, I need my daddy, and the other is a lion. I hate you, sin. You dare to kill you all day long. I look for that in people. I look for that combination. I don't like namby-pamby people. And I don't like people who are only kill, 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 kill with no tenderness about them at all. Because the Holy Spirit's witness in you does both. It's one of the reasons it's so powerfully evident that you're a child of God is that just like Christ puts together diverse excellencies, to use the words of Jonathan Edwards, human beings led by the Spirit produce diverse excellencies. We are warriors, and we hate sin, our sin. I'm talking about our sin. And bent out of shape about the world's sin. I expect the world to do wicked things. This born-again man, you raise that, you raise that, I'm cutting your head off. At least I'm trying to lean on the Spirit that much. some erasing here just so we can see these last verses. Okay. The Spirit himself bears witness with, I'm at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs. Heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ, provided we, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Take a deep breath. 
and be amazed. You really do need to pray as you read the Bible that God would give you the capacities to be amazed. That's what the psalmist does, right? Open my eyes that I may behold wonders, not just facts, wonders out of your law. I, I see facts and black marks every time I open my Bible. I don't see wonders every time I open my Bible because I'm blind much of the time. So pray right now. God, help me to see this. If you are a child of God, you are an heir of God. You got any emotions corresponding to that at all? Like how much does he own? And fellow heirs with Christ, the very Son of God. Fellow heirs. It's like with your wife. Peter said, your fellow heirs of the grace of life. And I said, your fellow heirs with God, the Son. Both of you. Provided, before we go to the provided, look, what are you going to inherit? Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be an heir of the world. So you're going to inherit the world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you get the world. This is 1 Corinthians 3.21, all things are yours. Paul, Paul, Cephas, world, confirmation. Life, death, present, future, all are yours. You are Christ. Christ is God's. Because Christ belongs to God, who owns all things, he owns all things. And because we belong to Christ, who owns all things, because God owns all things, we own all things by way of inheritance. I'm going to get all the way back here a minute. We will come into this inheritance of the world and glorification. See that at the end of the verse? We will be glorified with him. We'll see more of that later. Provided, here's another one of these big ifs. Just like chapter, verse 13 said, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will be glorified. Here it says, if you suffer with him, you'll be glorified. Another if, which raises the huge question like, oh, do I need to go out and make some enemies real quick? Got to have a, a persecution quotient today to hold my assurance up? That's a good question. It is a good question. What kind of suffering does he have in mind here? Who, is there a degree of suffering, a measure of suffering? That's a really big question. The... the the right way to answer a question like that is to think in concentric circles, start with the immediate context and ask, is there a clue in the context? So let's go to the next paragraph, the last one we'll look at in these last few minutes. I'm going to go 10 minutes over time. He told me I could. We're going to quit at 12.10 if you're getting hungry. All right. The next verse, after saying... You will inherit the world and glorification with Christ if you suffer with him. The next verse says, for I consider that the sufferings, so there was zero reason to go running elsewhere to get a parallel for the word suffering. This is it. So what does he mean here? For I consider that those sufferings that you have to walk through in order to get to heaven, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it. And hope that the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glorious, uh, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let's, let's keep going. For the creation was... All, the creation has been groaning together until now in the pains of childbirth. And not the creation only, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly, waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So you put that together, verses um, 18 to 23. What's the suffering? Persecution is not even mentioned in that paragraph. I'm sure it's included. What's mentioned is we live in a world where you can count on it. You're going to groan, waiting the redemption of your bodies. So 57 years old, Moore, Oklahoma, he cut her head off yesterday. Welcome to America, ISIS. I don't know whether that's true or not, just what I feel. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. And when it comes, we will groan. Maybe not long. And the reason we will groan is because that's what can happen to bodies that are not yet redeemed. You won't be able to cut my head off in heaven. It will be indestructible. A body is sown in weakness, raised in power. Nobody can kill me on the other side, but here I can die of cancer, ALS, leukemia, and beheading. It's all the sufferings of this present time. Which means that what he's saying is this. When he said, provided you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. He doesn't mean, now go out and make sure you get your quotient of pain today. He means it's coming. And if you suffer it with him, in reliance on him, for his glory, received from his hand as your sovereign surgeon and therapist, you'll make it. But if you, if you make suffering an occasion to get in God's face and tell him off and say, if that's the way you treat your children, I'm out of here, you will perish. It really matters how you deal with suffering. Really matters. Provided you suffer with him, not against him, you will be glorified. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. What, what glory is that? It's going to be revealed to us. What glory is that? Is it God's glory? Your glory? Glory of the universe? Keep reading. Worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing. Ah, clue, clue. Revealed, revealing. So this is probably this, right? The revealed is what's being revealed here for the revealing of the sons of God. Whoa. So the glory that is about to be revealed to us is our glory. That's in no sense a belittlement or a diminishment of the centrality of the glory of God. It just means God means to share it. That's what verse 17 said. You will be glorified with him, glorified with him, and I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worth compared to what's going to happen at that moment when we are glorified with him as the sons of God and we come into being like suns in the sky that nobody can look at. That will make it all worth it. That's what he means. Revealing of the sons of God. But, but notice something else in verse 19. The creation is waiting like on tiptoes, waiting with eager longing for that. I mean, I had in my mind for years that God would make a new creation, like a playground, and then he would fit me for that. 
Well, in a sense, that's right, but it's the other way around. Let's just make this so off the charts incredible. It's the other way around. The creation, I'm in verse 19, the creation is waiting with eager longing till we shine like the sun. And they say, all the galaxies say, can I get in? That is amazing. The creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly. (laughs) The creation didn't, didn't want to have famines and pestilence and earthquakes and tsunamis and viruses and Ebola. The creation was subjected to horrible futility and bondage to corruption, not willingly, but by the will of him who subjected it. Who's that? I used to say, well, it was Adam or the devil. That won't work because of the word in hope. There's only one person who could subject it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he said it twice now. He said it in verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And he says it again now. Here, the creation is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. This, this, this verb here is it's just a preposition in the Greek. Into. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You get your Freedom from sin and freedom from bondage and freedom from suffering and freedom from groaning and a glorious glorification with Jesus. And then, and then the universe jumps in to share it. The creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain your freedom, your glory as the children of God. You need to pray hard when you read that. Okay, we're going to make it. This is the end for this session. Best is yet to come. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now, this four, therefore, goes back and explains why the creation will come into the enjoyment of the freedom of the glory of the children of God because its groaning is not the throes of death but labor pains. That's the argument. You watch a woman whose child is stillborn. And a woman who's almost ready to give birth to a live baby. They may sound exactly the same. It hurts. And so Paul is clarifying, what is this that we're looking at? What is this horrible, horrible world that we're looking at? Death throws Universe collapsing into meaningless nothingness or birth pains. And he's crystal clear. The groaning of this awful world is the groaning of birth pains. Where do you get that? Jesus. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Paul didn't make that up. Earthquakes. 250,000 people dead after the tsunami. What's the meaning of that? They're birth pains. That's what they are. And not only the creation, oh, this is just, mm. and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
can almost see it in English. You can see it in English. When he says, not only, not only the creation, but we ourselves. It's really emphatic in Greek. We ourselves, even we. And you can hear what he's doing. He's talking to prosperity gospelers. Seriously. People who believed Well, sure, the world has to groan. Sure, the creation has to groan. But the king's kids don't have to groan. We got the spirit. We got the cross. We got the righteousness. We got the inheritance. We got the power. Our wives don't miscarry. Our cattle don't die. And we get our pickup truck. You don't. Even we, even we, even we, even we, who have, yes, yes, we do have the first fruits. The rest is coming. Our position is secure. But even we, who have the first fruits, groan. Because we're waiting. Life is a wait. It's a wait. We don't have it now. The prosperity gospel's main problem is over-realized heaven. Heaven is later Now he's suffering, groaning, aching, cancer, beheadings, dying. We are being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. We're being killed all day long. What's this prosperity crap? No, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We wait for our adoption. You're already adopted. Yes, we are. But the full experience of it, the redemption of our bodies, that's what we want. I don't want my body to be an instrument of unrighteousness. I don't want it to be an agent of sin. I'm tired of its yielding to the law of sin. Well, take heart because you will be Saved. Final verse. We'll quit before we read this. For in this hope, 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 we were saved. We've been saved. Now, and then he's talking to these same people again. Hope that is seen. If you can see all the power, if you can see all the healing, if you can see all the prosperity, you don't need to hope. Now, hope that is seen, it's not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees. I'm telling you, you've been saved in hope, not hate, saved in seeing. We walk by faith and not by sight. But if we hope, if we hope for what we do not see, and we do, what a glory, what an inheritance, we wait. And we wait patiently in the hands of our sovereign God. Father, as we break and listen to all the small talks this afternoon and pray and deal with you about the sufferings of our own lives, come and move on us, I pray, in power, in Jesus' name.